Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading Acts 1, 7, and 8, and John 1, 35 to 42. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And from John, the next day John was there again with his two disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, this means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying. And they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said to, had said, and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, is, which when translated, is Peter. May God add his blessing to the word. All right. Good morning to everyone. So we're in a series on the Great Commission. We're looking at that mission statement that Jesus gives his disciples, gives the church then and now, to go out and make disciples of all nations, which, as I've been trying to talk to you about, maps very well onto our mission statement at Midway. Do you know what our mission statement... Can we back that sound down just a little bit? Does anybody know what our mission statement is at Midway? Like, if I do this... Thank you, Sherry. We're getting there. Welcoming community, nurturing followers of Jesus. We're going to do this for 52 weeks, and then we're going to have it. Um, no, we're getting there. And last week we talked about how part of making disciples, there's two really important things. It's a we thing, meaning it's our task. It's not the minister's task. It's not the leadership team's task. And it's a relationship thing. And what I want to do today is now talk about what does it mean to be a witness? In the passage that Rich just read in Acts, we've got another scene of Jesus' last words before his ascension to the, to the right hand of the Father. And he tells his apostles, uh, his disciples, that a power is coming, right? This is actually Pentecost Sunday. That power that's coming is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, when that power comes upon you, you are then going to go out and be witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So we have these kind of concentric circles where it goes out and out. And he tells them, you're going to be witnesses. So let's think about what a witness is. Think about, I mean, oftentimes we talk about a witness in the court of law. So if you're called to be a witness in court, you're called to testify about something you've seen or something you've experienced. 
I was standing in Columbiana on the street corner. A guy was texting, bam, he hit the car in front of him. So to be a witness, you have to see something, right? There's no point in being a witness if you've never seen anything or never experienced anything. The disciples, apostles, they're going to go out and be witnesses because they have seen and experienced Jesus Christ. They've walked around with him. They've heard his teachings. They've seen him death and the resurrection, and now it's going to be time to go out and witness, go out and testify to what they've seen and heard. Anybody here, you don't have to raise your hand, you can just think, anybody here get anxious about witnessing for Jesus? Anybody get anxious when you realize someone's about to witness to you about Jesus? That makes me really anxious. Why is that? I think the two are often connected. Because most of us have probably experienced or seen ways of witnessing to Jesus that seem manipulative. Cue the Christian haunted house of Halloween. Some of them seem like they kind of cheapen the gospel. Like that's, 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 I struggle with that. Something as big and beautiful as the, uh, the unleashing, the salvation unleashing story of Jesus Christ this long-awaited Messiah from the line of David who brings to completion the story of Israel through his death, his life, death, and resurrection. He now reigns as king and will usher in the new heavens and new earth, redeeming all creation. That's a big story. That's a compelling story. When you take it and you reduce it to something like a cartoon, I'm like, man, that does not compel me. Sometimes I get sent, like, in the mail, I don't know if it's because I'm a pastor, like a track, a religious track, and oftentimes it's like a cartoon. I don't know if they want me to pass that out or what, but it cheapens the gospel to me. I don't think the gospel can fit on a billboard. I don't think it can fit on a religious track. And some of us, if we've experienced sometimes witnessing, that makes us even feel a little bit icky. Because it feels like the person witnessing to us is more interested in us as a project than they are as us as a person, right? I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but no, it does not feel good if you feel like somebody sees you as a project. And if you're anything like me, you're like, I don't want anything to do with that. I think part of why some of us get anxious about witnessing is because we've been made anxious by someone trying to witness to us. And yet, as cringeworthy as maybe some of those ways of witnessing are, The answer is not to go quiet. Because witnessing is who we are. It's at our very core as disciples. Henry Nallen writes this. You can put up that first slide. As a reaction to a very aggressive, manipulative, and often degrading type of evangelization, we sometimes have become hesitant to make our own religious convictions known, thereby losing our sense of witness. There's that word. Although at times it seems to better to deepen our own commitments than to evangelize others, it belongs to the core of Christian spirituality to reach out to the other with good news. It belongs to the core of who we are as disciples to reach out to the other with good news. Is there a better way? Let me just go back in early on in John's Gospel to a story I think helps us get a one, and there's lots of ways we can do one idea, maybe a better way to witness. And I'm going to go back to this early in Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist 
has been out testifying, witnessing to Jesus, saying, there's somebody else coming. Saying to the religious leaders, I'm not the one, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the one you've been waiting for, someone is coming greater than I am. John then sees Jesus, uh, he has this encounter with Jesus, he baptizes Jesus, he sees the Spirit come upon Jesus, and he says this, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Right, so John is starting to testify. He's starting to witness to what he's seen and experienced with who Jesus is. Okay, next day, and this is, brings us up to our passage. I love this story. Next day, John the Baptist is out with his disciples, right? So John has his own disciples, and he sees Jesus, and John's in a, in a pretty intense guy, right? And he's like, look, the Lamb of God. Right? So tomorrow, when you're at work, don't try to do John. That might be a little too intense for people. Look, the Lamb of God. He's testifying. He's witnessing to who Jesus is, right? Last week, we talked about how you as a disciple are a relational link between that person and Jesus. And this is exactly what John's doing, right? He's making a connection between his disciples and Jesus. He's, he's moving the attention away from himself and putting it on Jesus. And as we're thinking this morning... What might we do to reduce some of our anxiety about witnessing for Jesus? I think this is really helpful, uh, something that we see here in John. Right? John's method of witnessing was actually to point away from himself and towards Jesus. I'm not the one. Right? This is God's chosen one. Look at the Lamb of God. Later on, he must become greater, I must become less. And what happens is that John's disciples literally stop following John, and they begin to follow Jesus. So John actually loses disciples, loses followers. Think about, uh, in our world today, how strange it is for someone to seek to lose followers, right? Because in many ways, one of the most valuable things you can have, one of the most valuable currencies you can have on social media is Followers. Pop quiz, who is the most followed person on Instagram? Not us, not Midway Mennonite. I don't even think we have an Instagram account. Not us. Anybody know? Most followed. Number one, Cristiano Ronaldo, 631 million followers. Number two, Lionel Messi, 461 million followers. If you don't know who those guys are, we've got to start watching more football, right? More America. <laughs> More, more, more soccer, more football. Two, two of the greatest football players of all time. Okay? Imagine with me Ronaldo plays against Messi. Ronaldo experiences the greatness of Messi. And afterwards, he goes on to his Instagram account and says, I have seen Messi play, and I need to testify he is the GOAT. He is the real greatest of all time. Messi must become greater and I must become blessed. It's time to unfollow me and follow Messi. That is not what we do. We're no Ronaldo, we're no Messi. We've got a little bit of fame, we've got a little bit of followers. The tendency in us, certainly not in our culture, is not to lower ourselves and to raise someone up. We want to build up our following. We want to build up our name, our reputation. Look at John. Look at the humility of John. He is bold and unafraid to witness because he knows the greatest of all time is standing right in front of him. 
John the Baptist, John the Baptist is no slouch. But when John the Baptist gets in the presence of Jesus, John the Baptist feels small in the best way. Say, knowing who Jesus is shouldn't make us bold witnesses for Jesus. Why? Because ultimately it's not about us. And at the very same time, being witnesses for Jesus should make us humble. Why? Because it's not about us. As C.S. Lewis put so well, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humility is about getting outside of yourself. Humility is about getting away from navel-gazing. One of the reasons I think we struggle, I think I struggle to witness, is because often I'm more focused on myself than I am Jesus. Right? I'm in a situation where I'm going to witness some of Jesus. How is this going to make me look? Is this going to make me look dumb? Is this going to make me, is this going to offend this person? What are they going to think about me? Anybody else? Anybody else having all these anxious feelings in yourself? Or I'm the only one. Okay, cool. <laughs> we get tied up in knots because our minds are consumed with ourselves. John is bold. John is confident. And at the same time, humble. He's unconcerned about his reputation. He is concerned about the people right in front of him. His disciples. He is concerned about exalting Jesus and lowering himself. Because he knows it's not about him, it's about Jesus. Right? This is not just the path to be a less anxious witness about Jesus. This is the path to freedom and joy. As the Trappist monk Thomas Merton said, we got messy and we got Merton. Right? That's even Merton. When humility delivers a person from attachment to their own works and reputation, they discover true joy is only possible when we have completely forgotten ourselves. This isn't just about being a more effective witness. This is about the path to true joy. Right? So first thing I want you to see we learn from John. Witnessing to Jesus is ultimately not about us. It's not about our reputation. It's about Jesus, his reputation, pointing people to him. Second thing I want you to see. When we witness to someone about Jesus, often, probably usually what we're doing is helping them move along the scale. So notice in our text how John hands off his disciples to Jesus. John has played an important role in getting these people to Jesus. But that, that is ended, and he hands them off to Jesus. They've got a journey ahead of them. They've got to learn what it means to follow Jesus. They've got to learn all kinds of things. Greg Ogden points out that we often think about, well, think about conversion. Uh, often we think about conversion as a, it goes from one point to the next, and they're right by each other. Greg Ogden says, think about conversion as a scale of 1 to 100. Okay, just think about in your mind a scale of 1 and 100. 1 is someone who is completely hostile towards Jesus, wants nothing to do with Jesus. And 100 is someone who is totally converted, is totally sold out for Jesus. Okay. When we witness to someone about Jesus, they might be at the beginning of this journey. right? They're probably somewhere on this continuum. right? They may be hostile, they may not be hostile, they may be indifferent, or they may be something closer moving towards conversion, right? Most likely, you and I, as witnesses, are going to play a small role in helping them move along that scale. I mean, think back to your own, maybe your own journey to Jesus, or even you can think about your own discipleship journey. It's very unlikely that you knew nothing about Jesus, you met one person that knew about Jesus, and bam, 
that took you from 1 to 100. Very unlikely. What most likely happened, if you think about your journey, you had various people along the way that helped you move you along a continuum. Right? That might have started in your family. It might have moved to people in uh, your, your friends. It might have, you know, you, everyone has a story about people moving them along that continuum. And I think this is why I think this is helpful as we think about witnessing. Because oftentimes, I think we put pressure on ourselves to take someone from 1 to 100 in 5 minutes. Right? I, we're checking out groceries. You know nothing about Jesus. i got 3 minutes. i got to take you all the way to Jesus. Right? That's probably not going to happen. Probably what's going to happen is if you have a small role, you're going to help someone hopefully move along a continuum. It's not that dramatic conversion stories don't happen at all. I'm not saying that. But we just need to recognize there's more likely there's a lot of people playing roles that help that person move to that moment of conversion. Let me, let me go back. I told you a story about a friend of ours last week from Illinois who was uh, searching for Jesus and this, uh, had a, a relationship with her through my farm in Illinois, through our farm in Illinois. And I had no idea I told you that she was searching for Jesus. Well, again, when we were talking a few weeks ago, this is years later after her own conversion experience, and she said to me and Krishana, she said, you know, you guys were, uh, you guys, I, really, I looked at you, I was like, they know Jesus and they seem normal. <laughs> but, so apparently, like, my and Krishana's role in that process was to just be normal, which is really funny because um, living eight years in intentional Christian community on a farm was like the weirdest thing that most of our friends and family thought we ever did, right? But whatever, like in that moment, we were offering something that looks like normal, right? It was a small role. But for her at that moment, it was a picture she needed. She was moving along a continuum, right? And, she, and we were able to offer a very small thing to her as she moved and then went to the next part. Sometimes it's the complete opposite, right? Sometimes in my own discipleship, the people who have rocked my world are the people that are doing really weird things. The people that aren't doing the status quo thing in discipleship. The people that are doing something really strange. I have been deeply, deeply formed by people doing weird things. I needed to see them do unusual things to move me along my own discipleship journey. My point is that oftentimes when we encounter with somebody, we're helping them move along a continuum. You might run into someone who is... Um, is completely hostile to Jesus, right? Your role in that situation, good chance is not to say anything, it's just to be kind to them. See if you can do a small part to take away some harmful stereotypes about Christianity. Uh, maybe you encounter someone that's been deeply wounded by the church or deeply wounded by you know, something related to church. Maybe your role there is just to say, I am so sorry that happened. That does not represent Jesus. Not to be defensive. It's not to go on the attack. It's just to say, I'm so sorry. Maybe you're just helping a little bit of a crack there for that person. Maybe pointing people to Jesus is helping to rebuild a house in Kentucky that was wiped out by a tornado. Maybe. Sorry, that was a shameless plug. <laughs> All right, I was going to put that out there. But listen to me. I'm speaking to a lot of people here, including myself. Maybe we also got to say some words. Like, I think this is the growing edge for many of us in our congregation, our personality types, my own, is that oftentimes, we'd rather swing a hammer, 
We'd rather cook up a dinner than tell people about Jesus. And our hope is that they can somehow get from hammer and casserole to death, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? <laughs> we can do it. If we give them just the right casserole, we'll get them to Jesus, all right? And I am not knocking that at all. It's one of the things that drew me into the Midnight Church. I love that Mennonites want to testify with casseroles and swinging hammers. I think it's beautiful. Do we need deeds? Absolutely. But we need words, too. We're going to have to be able to tell the story of Jesus. The Apostle Paul talks about um, people coming to, to faith in Jesus as being a growing like a plant. So think about, we're coming up on strawberry season, one of my favorite seasons of the year. And think about that, that incredible moment when you bite into this locally grown, sweet, on the red on the inside, sweet, delicious strawberry. Nothing like those monstrosities from California. Can I tell that, can I tell that story? I, I just want to say, a couple months ago, I talked about how bad California strawberries were. In my sermon, two days later, California strawberries show up at our house. So, like, did anybody listen to this? No. It took, here's my point. There's a point to it. It took a lot of steps and people to get that strawberry into your mouth. Somebody prepared the ground, somebody tilled it up, somebody planted, somebody fertilized, somebody weeded, somebody watered, somebody mulched, somebody picked. There's lots of steps it took. Many people have many roles in leading both to faith in Jesus and then to continue on the discipleship journey, right? Sometimes you're just breaking ground, right? Sometimes someone knows nothing about Jesus, you are just getting the plow in there and just opening things up so that somebody later on can come in with a seed or plant. Right? Sometimes you're doing the weeding. Right? Sometimes you're doing your work to remove some of those harmful stereotypes or that, 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 that pain that they've experienced with other Christians. Sometimes we're doing some watering. We're, we're sitting down, we're leading the Gospel of Mark with them. We're getting deep into what is, who is Jesus? What did he come to do? What does he offer us? And sometimes we're at, privileged to be at the harvest. When somebody turns over their life to Jesus as their Savior and Lord, what a privilege it is to be with people. But there's a lot of people that played a part in leading that person to this. And so here's what I think our prayer should be. I'm drawing this from somebody else. But God, use us as a congregation, use me, to help the person in front of me take the next step in their journey towards a decision to follow Jesus. You see how that hopefully removes some of the pressure away from you? If you, if you want to meet that person, you've got to take them from 1 to 100, you're going to be very anxious, probably not going to help you too much in your conversation with them. But what if before, in that morning, before I start, when I know I'm about to meet someone, I say, Lord, just help me take the next step to show them, to help them along in their journey to following you. Just help me with that. Because ultimately, and this should take some pressure off us, ultimately we know God is the one who causes the growth. We can't force growth. We can't force people to follow Jesus. We can't force people into the kingdom of God. But God uses us to help them along the journey. That's the second thing. I'm trying to help us think, how do we lower anxiety? The second thing is, we've got to remember, usually we're going to be helping people move along and continue. Through words and through deeds. But if, here's the third thing. If we're going to be effective witnesses, we're going to have to go up before we go out. 
What do I mean? We'll go back in the passage in Acts. Jesus gives his apostles marching orders that go, go back to Jerusalem, they're going to wait for the Spirit, and then they're going to go out and witness. Um, so guess what the apostles do when they get to Jerusalem? They pray. Right? We read that they're constantly praying. Today, as I mentioned, today is Pentecost Sunday, the Sunday we marked when the Spirit came upon them in Jerusalem. And if you remember, like things started getting wild. Peter preaches a sermon. You know, people are cut to the heart. There's 3,000 people that are baptized that day. Right? Things get wild on Pentecost in the best way. But what preceded Pentecost? It was prayer. Right? They gathered up in prayer and waited for the Spirit. Prayer in the Spirit. Look at Jesus and his mission. What does Jesus do right before he, he launches his public ministry? He's baptized. The Spirit comes upon him. And number two, what does he do after that? What does he do? He goes out and prays. And fasts in the wilderness by himself. Spirit, prayer, fasting launches his ministry. And we see that throughout Jesus' ministry. He is in constant communication with the Father. Notice in the Gospels, oftentimes very consequential things happen. Right after Jesus goes and he prays, he comes back, something big happens. You can see this pattern. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount, our, our handbook for discipleship. Jesus never teaches his disciples how to preach. What does he teach them how to do? Pray. Isn't that interesting? He never teaches them how to preach, but he takes a big section of that Sermon on the Mount to teach them how to pray. If you and I are going to go out on mission, out as witnesses, we're going to have to go up in prayer. There's this rhythm to the life of a disciple, and it's abiding with Jesus and bearing fruit. Imagine with me in your mind a pendulum moving back and forth, to and forth, between abiding with Jesus, hanging out with Jesus, going out and being fruitful. That's why spiritual disciplines of keeping Sabbath, of developing a life of prayer, of fasting are so important for disciples of Jesus. Let's just take Sabbath, for example. If we're constantly exhausted, we never take one day to just stop and rest and enjoy God. Do you think we're going to have the energy and life to go out? No, I don't think we are. Every one of these disciplines has a reason behind them what they can do. They help us to bear fruit. Right? In order to be witnesses for Jesus, we've got to abide with Jesus. We've got to get to know the person that we're witnessing about. Again, if you're going to be a witness, you've got to know what you're talking about. We've got to be hanging out with Jesus. We've got to go up before we can go out. Jesus probably most powerfully illustrates this with the vine and the branches. If we're going to bear fruit, we're going to have to be connected to the vine of Jesus Christ. And in fact, do you know what, in that passage in John, it's a well-known passage, do you know what Jesus says we can do apart from him? Nothing. I mean, just think about that. Go back, John 15. What can we do apart from Jesus? He says nothing, which is why we need this rhythm, abiding with Jesus, going out on mission, abiding with Jesus, going out on mission. I think oftentimes maybe some of us are more drawn to one or the other, and that's understandable. Some of it's personality-wise. Thankfully, we have people on the frontiers evangelizing. Some of us are more introverted. Some of us more deep, but we both, we need to be both as disciples. Some of those people on the frontier need to really anchor themselves in disciplines. Some of those people really anchored in disciplines need to also be going out on the frontier. 
So, if we reduce the anxiety, we're going to need to bathe our lives with prayer, and we're going to remember it's the Spirit working inside of us. I want you to point out one more thing here before we're done. That we learn from this story. Um, John, so, go back to the story with me. John and Jesus, John's disciples follow Jesus. Uh, I, I, I love this moment. It's one of my favorite moments on the Gospels. Those disciples of John, they start to follow Jesus. Jesus flips around and says, what do you want? Or, as one translation says, what are you looking for? It's the first words out of Jesus' mouth in John's Gospel. And it's kind of the question behind all questions. And the first question Jesus says is not, what do you believe? It's not, what do you know? What do you want? What are you looking for? You, you, you find out what drives a person, what animates them. Don't ask them what they believe. Ask them what they want. Ask them what they love. Ask them what they're searching for. You're going to get a lot more interesting answer, a lot more honest answer than if you ask someone what they really believe about. I want you to notice how Jesus' outreach to his disciples begins with a question. I think sometimes we as Christians have more of a reputation of telling people what they should do and should know than asking people and being curious and listening and asking questions. It's not that there's not a time, it's not that we don't hold our convictions, and it's not that there's not a time we talk, but we're often not very good about listening. Why is that so important? Because often if, we're, if we don't know the questions they're answering, asking, we're going to have a hard time giving them answers. Let me just give you just a quick example. Asbury Revival that happened a couple months ago. The one of the things that fascinated me about that revival is that everyone that was going there was going to that sanctuary where all those young people were experiencing this revival. They weren't finding people jumping up off around the stage or whatever. It was peace. Again and again, these young people sat in there and they said they didn't want to leave because they had ex experienced this feeling of peace. But that's not surprising. COVID, going through school during a pandemic, pressures that they're dealing with that we're not dealing with in terms of social media, a mental health crisis among our young people, it probably shouldn't surprise us. It's not to say that the revivals of old are bad, but it doesn't surprise me that the thing that young people were drawn to was peace. If we're going to be able to reach out to people, we're going to have to know what they're looking for. We're going to have to listen to them. Why do we have to listen to them? Not just so we can convert them, we want to show them to Jesus. But listening is just an incredible act of love, especially today. Many people in our community have no one to listen to them. But it's incredible how much love and care you can show someone just by listening. It's like a superpower, right? Not because you're trying to get something from them, but because they are your neighbor and you are called to love your neighbor as yourself. Listening is a powerful thing to do. But, going back to witnessing, if we're going to be a relational link, if we're going to help connect them to Jesus, we're going to, do, we're going to be a lot better off if we've spent some time listening, hearing the questions you're asking, hearing what they're searching for. Let me give you an example. A little, so a little over a week ago, Tim Keller died. If you don't know who Tim Keller is, he's probably the most influential American evangelist since Billy Graham. Not as well known as some, but he's extremely influential. So I'm reading lots of tributes about Tim Keller this last week, 
Uh, Tim Keller and his wife, Kathy, in, in 1989, moved to Manhattan to start a theologically conservative church, which people thought was nuts. Right? So New York Magazine called this in jest, close to a theological suicide mission to create a strictly conservative Christian church in the heart of Sodom. This is New York Magazine. This isn't Christian saying. Right? To, to plant a church in 1989 in Manhattan, a place deeply suspicious of Christianity, just sounded crazy. By 2007, the church that Keller, or Tim, and Kathy, and many other people had, had, had 5,000 attendees, and it spawned over a dozen daughter congregations in the metro area. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Keller was kind of a once-in-a-generation guy in many ways. But here's what I want to point out. Keller cared enough to be curious, to listen, and to spend time with people in Manhattan. He was able to connect with young professionals in Manhattan because he took the time to understand their struggles, to, to find out what they were hungering for, to listen to their doubts, to listen to their hopes, what, what they were hungering for. And what he found was a deep spiritual hunger. In a place somebody said, no, 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 you're not going to find that in Manhattan. Oh, there was, it's everywhere. There was incredible spiritual hunger. And he was able to connect them with Jesus Christ. Let's put up that last slide. As Greg Ogden puts it well, I'm convinced that if our witness consisted of becoming caring listeners who attend to the needs around us, there would be no end of the opportunities to share Christ. Listen to this. On the surface, people may not give evidence of spiritual hunger, but I believe that hunger lurks just below the surface. I absolutely firmly feel There's a hunger there. Sometimes it takes time to figure out what it is, but there's a hunger there. What are people in Columbiana hungry for? What are people in Mahoning County hungry for? What are they looking for? What are their needs? One of the things we're going to have to do if we're going to be witnesses of Jesus is to be good listeners. To take time to be curious, to get to know those people. We finish here with just one more word. I've, I've primarily been talking today to disciples of Jesus, to people who have already made a commitment to follow Jesus. But I want to, I want to at the end, speak to, to you who may not have made that decision. One of the beautiful parts of this little story in John's Gospel is that the disciples don't end up so much finding Jesus as Jesus finds them. As Augustine said, we could not have begun to seek for God unless he had already found us. Yes, often we speak of our faith as a search for God and for following Jesus, but in reality, when we come to Jesus, we don't just finally catch up with Jesus. We realize we come to the one who's been standing there all along. Often it's only after we have found God that we look back on our life and we realize God has been searching for us this whole time. He's been seeking us. Right? If you are worn out from your search for God, I would encourage you to pray to God, God, come find me. God, come find me. I'm on a journey. I can't seem to find you. Come find me. Jesus is not trying to hide from you. He's standing there in the road. He's meeting you where you are. He's asking what you want. He's probing your heart. He's searching you. He sees the hunger inside of you, and he knows that that hunger will be met in one place or one person, him. And he graciously extends the invitation. Come, and you will see.